Welcome to Deep Talks, a podcast that explores theology and meaning-making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. You're listening to episode three in a three-part series that's exploring the theology of Jordan Peterson. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, welcome back. Hope you've had an opportunity to listen to the first two episodes in this three-part series. Today is going to be the finale uh, in this series on the theology of Jordan Peterson. So go back, give those a listen, or give them a watch on YouTube. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner, and today I'm really excited for today's episode because what I'm going to do today in my uh, finale here, uh, a a final exploration of the theology of Jordan Peterson, is I actually want to bring Jordan Peterson into dialogue with one of his heroes. I, I think it's somebody that he has admitted is a bit of a, maybe a philosophical hero to him, and I want to bring them into conversation together. And so this today's conversation, hypothetical conversation, is going to be between Jordan Peterson and the 19th century Danish philosopher uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And I'm going to bring them into dialogue because I think the major thing that is missing from Jordan Peterson's theology, his philosophy, his worldview, And ultimately, his advice that he gives to millions of people, what's missing is an ingredient that can be found in the work of Kierkegaard. So let's dive into it today. I think one of the reasons it's so hard for Jordan Peterson to answer the ultimate question, that, that question that is so frequently presented to him in interviews and in post-lecture Q&A time, the ultimate question about the existence of God and the subsequent questions about the divinity of Christ and whether Christ rose from the dead, I think it's so hard for him to answer that question because I do think he, he may be ideologically committed to the work of Carl Jung. And for Jung, the epistemological bounds of what is possible to be known seems to preclude the possibility that one could know God even if he or she or it existed. For Jung, and what also appears to be the case for Peterson, there are limits to what one can say they are able to know. And standing in between the limits of what one is able to say that they can know and the thing that's unknowable are archetypes, right? These archetypes are sort of representatives. They say things that go beyond language. And again, in many ways, there's some resonance there with the Christian tradition. You know, we can say with a a certain degree of agreement that Um, descriptions about God and who God is, the language that we use to try to describe him, whether that's in his character, his nature, and his self-disclosure and his revelation, does seem to go beyond the bounds of language. That would make sense when you're talking about an infinite God. But one of the key differences here, theologically for Christians, is that the infinite God actually longs to be known and makes himself known. Historically, Christians have affirmed uh, 
multiple senses by which humans can come to know God. Now, sometimes in the Christian tradition, this can get presented as multiple pathways to knowing God. And historically, those two pathways have been in reason and in revelation. And this is where I want to bring Kierkegaard in as a dialogue partner with Jordan Peterson. Because uh, for Kierkegaard, the affirmation of revelation, the necessity of revelation in coming to know God and coming to know God as Christ was absolutely central. If you eliminate that, if you eliminate revelation, and in particular for Kierkegaard, there's a, a mechanism by which humans participate in or activate the, the, the sense of revelation or, or, or come into uh, knowledge of God through that pathway, um, that if you eliminate that possibility and you are only left with reason for discerning God, then you are left at a point that's actually very similar to where it appears Peterson is. And that is to say, the, the evidence is ambiguous. You know, for, for Kierkegaard, he would even go as far as to say it would be, um, you know, absurd to try to argue for the existence of God based on reason alone, because for one thing, there's so much suffering in the universe, and the universe is such a huge place. You know, how could anybody look out there, just employ reason, and go, boy, there's a God, and, you know, this God is good? And, you know, that's probably maybe a debate for, debate for another another time. Um, but what I do think is most important here is that for Kierkegaard to answer the question, not just about the existence of God, but the question about Christ, which is the crucial question, it cannot be answered by reason. I mean, Kierkegaard even said, and, and this is this is direct quote, um, can any more absurd contradiction be imagined than wishing to prove that an individual person is God? Again, he's, you know, pause the quotation here. He's referring to the individual person as Christ. Back to the quote here. Now, think of proving that. How can you make something that conflicts with reason into something reasonable? And, he ha- and he ha- he's got a, just a salient point here. How in the world can somebody begin to believe that the unreasonable is reasonable? The unreasonable that is the ultimate paradox that God became a man who was fully God, fully man. This is not reasonable. Now, you might be able to say, well, it seems reasonable that there was a person that lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine who was a Jewish teacher. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He died. He had followers. Those followers said they saw him raised from the dead. I think you could make reasonable cases for that. Um, But Kierkegaard's point is that that doesn't bring you into a knowledge of who God is. Because you have not entered into God's self-disclosure through the specific doorway, the doorway that Kierkegaard believes is necessary in order to enter into the full picture of who God is in Christ, that full picture that taps into revelation and not just reason. And the way that one enters through that door into this, the paradoxical mystery of God 
in Christ is through faith. Now, at this point, it might be helpful to bring in uh, another noted Christian philosopher, uh, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis had, a, you know, obviously his many famous allegories and stories from, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia and his Space Trilogy, et cetera, et cetera. But a lesser known one is a, um, a, a short story that he wrote for his a local newspaper in July of, of 1945, a uh, piece that he called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And I'm going to read here uh, something actually, you know, uh, Kevin Van Hooser over at Trinity gives a, a summary of uh, C.S. Lewis's Meditation in a Tool Shed. I'm going to read a little bit of it here now. The episode is quickly rehearsed. A certain young man, presumably in the story Lewis himself, goes into a tool shed. The door closes behind him. It's very dark inside, apart from a single beam of light. At first he looks at the beam and sees only specks of dust floating in it. Then he steps into the light. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanishes. He sees neither the tool shed nor the beam of light, but green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that the sun framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door. Lewis here differentiates between looking at the light and looking along the light. And it's in the same way that Kierkegaard contends that the way we to import Lewis's language here, look along the light and in the light is by actually stepping into it. That decisive commitment to step into the light becomes the way in which we enter into God's special revelation. And just like Lucy entering the wardrobe in Narnia, a new world emerges to us, one that seems very, very different than simply observing the wardrobe, or in the case of this particular short story, observing the beam of light in the tool shed. A new world emerges when you step into it. So, insofar as Peterson wishes to stand outside and make observations about the light, he is limiting himself. He is limiting, he is placing artificial limits on the epistemological bounds by which God has not placed. And the way I know this is not in the same knowing that happens when I um, do math. It's in a different sort of knowing. It's in that knowing that's in this category, a different set of senses. One that isn't irrational but is paradoxical and the difference between those two things the paradoxical for Kierkegaard was the key the truth was paradoxical the ultimate truth was paradoxical the ultimate truth of God's self-disclosure in a human being was paradoxical that God would die on a cross was paradoxical that Christ's call to gain your life, you must lose your life. These are the paradoxical truths that don't make sense in our minds, but are are totally settled in the mind of God. And so we enter into them through the decisive commitment of faith and not just a commitment to certain doctrines, but an actual commitment to following the person of Christ. And when that happens, 
this entire world, the world of revelation, the world of which we can come to know God and to say decisively, do you believe that God exists? And I can say, yes, I believe that God exists. Do you believe that Christ was divine? And I can go, yes, I believe Christ was divine. That knowledge comes through the medium of faith. It comes through the entering in of faith into following Christ. And in that following of Christ, we experience him in a way that we don't experience him like the Pharisees who stood outside of the light and made observations about the light from outside of it. So I guess one of my my concerns, a practical concern with those who give themselves over completely to the teachings of, of Peterson. Um, and this, this is a real thing. It's like a real phenomenon. You know, I, somebody, a friend of mine remarked, and he's a young guy fresh out of college that, you know, so many of his friends are really getting into to Kierkegaard and the, or not Kierkegaard, or getting into Peterson. And he, he almost acts in many ways as like a, a substitute pastor for them. And, and here would be like one of my hesitations and concerns. And it's not to say throw the baby out with the bathwater, never listen to the guy. He doesn't have anything valuable to say. But my concern here is that what, what, do, you, what do you rather have? Do you ra- would you rather have an endless cycle of archetypes? Where you get to an archetype, but then you realize the archetype is only representative of a thing that you'll never know, and then there's another archetype. Would you rather have would you rather settle for archetypes or the real living God that incarnated himself in Christ Jesus? The one that actually takes on, took on flesh and bone, and the one that in very real ways comes and takes up residence in us. And this is where I think maybe if you follow if you follow Peterson religiously you would in many ways perhaps your your religious viewpoints your theology would in many ways start looking pretty gnostic because for the gnostics Christ was never embodied, you know, Christ was this luminous being, luminous beings, are we? <laughs> and um, that's Yoda, not Kermit the Frog. Um, he, was, he wasn't matter, he wasn't material, because they were importing this presupposition that, that matter was broken, and matter was evil, and so in that way, you know, I don't think Peterson has ever stated anything about material, the material world being evil, but it is Gnostic in the sense that, you know, God is never reachable. All you have are archetypes, but the Christian message isn't that. Like the Christian message, again, is that God has actually become human being in a real moment in history, in a real Jewish human being with flesh and bone and blood, and he was fully human and fully God, and yet somehow these things, you know, these things, this divinity is not, it's not 50-50, 50% divinity, 50% humanity. It's somehow, and this is the paradox again, 100% divine, 100% 
human. And what you get is you actually get a God who is real and embodied. And that gives meaning and value to the physical universe. The God is not simply transcendent, but God has incarnated himself into flesh and bone and matter. And that Christ's death and resurrection affirms the value of the material world. It affirms the value of material bodies that are not simply material, but that the material world is also also infused holistically with the world of spirit, right? And so God in his son, in his, in his um, incarnation, becomes fully human, dies a fully human death, raises to life, defeats death. So you have the hope as an individual of not just having your life right now be meaningful, but even if you die before the world gets set right, you get promised that you'll be raised back to life in a material body that's like Christ, somehow material, somehow flesh and bone and blood. And Christians, again, have historically affirmed that even though Christ ascended, and that would be a whole nother podcast, that he is in flesh and bone still fully God, fully man. And when we are raised back to life, we will be fully human. And that that gives meaning and value to our existence. It gives meaning and value to this physical world. Kierkegaard once said that while Christ was living, no one became a believer by seeing him once in a while or by going and staring at him all day long. No, a certain setting is required. Venture a decisive act. The proof does not precede, but follows. It exists in and with the life that follows Christ. Now, long after Kierkegaard, other existentialist philosophers emerged on the scene in Western thought. As far as we know, Kierkegaard didn't consider himself to be an existentialist. In fact, he never used the term existentialism or existentialist at all. And as far as we know, he wasn't setting out to create some sort of new school of philosophical thought. What Kierkegaard was after was dealing with a a different kind of nihilism. And it wasn't the same sort of nihilism that was gripping Europe and America in the 20th century after world wars and after... uh, the growing popularity of metaphysical naturalism stripped people of their sense of meaning and purpose. Now, what Kierkegaard was just trying to deal with was a, a theological nihilism. He was trying to deal with the dead orthodoxy of a dead 19th century Danish church. And the solution for Kierkegaard to help Christendom get Christ back was to call people to a decisive act of following Jesus. Now, Satra and Camus take Kierkegaard's idea, leave Jesus with Kierkegaard and call people to fight and transcend nihilism through the decisive act. In many ways, Jordan Peterson is more of a disciple of Satra and Camus than he is of Kierkegaard. He's calling people to deal with the anxiety, the depression, the feelings of powerlessness and meaninglessness that are a serious issue uh, 
in Western thought today. And to try to defeat that by living responsible lives that take decisive action in the world. And this is a noble task, to call people to living principled ethical lives, to affirm the inherent meaningfulness of existence, and that people are, you know, divine image bearers. These are all, all good things. But what it comes short on is dealing with despair. And for Kierkegaard, despair was the result of the individual not becoming an authentic self. What is an authentic self to Kierkegaard? An authentic self is when the individual comes into alignment with the eternal. That is to say, when the individual comes into alignment with the very source of love. And in that way, it finds its authentic existence because it's living in accordance with its design purpose for existing. The individual living in accordance with the power that it create that created it is the thing that brings them out of despair. And unless that happens, then the person, the individual is not living an authentic life and they will experience despair, the sickness that leads unto death. If you've been watching on YouTube, you probably are able to tell in the background here the gradual setting of the sun happening as this podcast has been recorded. And the stained glass window behind me, it's usually just the the bright illumination of the sunlight and uh, you can't actually see the the distinct features of the stained glass in the background. But now you're able to see it and just as the sun has set in the background, uh, so it also marks the setting of the sun on this particular series exploring the theology of Jordan Peterson. I'd really love to hear from you guys in the comments section what you think have been maybe other theological strengths and weaknesses that you've picked up on as you've listened to this really crazy phenomenon that that is Dr. Jordan Peterson. So leave me a comment in you, uh, on YouTube or uh, in the comment section on iTunes or Podbean. I'd love to hear from you guys. Tell me what you've perceived. It'd be good to have some dialogue with all of you. And finally, I, I'd leave you with one question as you evaluate and move forward and trying to understand what role um, listening to Jordan Peterson talks and reading his books will have in your life in the future. The question I'd throw out to you is, um, do you prefer, would you prefer to settle for self-authoring when the opportunity is available for you to actually become an authentic self? Thanks for listening, guys. 